Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. I'm Nick Argyris. And this week, I'm looking for the best survival book. Mm-hmm. I am on the top of a mountain right now, and I'm going to need these bullet points as fast as possible. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't bring mine in bullet point form. I brought mine in long didactic, uh, like, Sto- story form. form. Yeah, I brought mine in story form. Is that going to be okay? <laughs> to help me are two, of course, high school English teachers. Ian and Joe. My name is Joe Holshu. I am a uh, I'm a high school English teacher. And Nick, today, if you are looking for books about survival, I brought a book. It's not about surviving on top of a mountain. It's about surviving in an authoritarian dictatorship. It's called Blueprint for a Revolution. It has a really long subtitle, uh, but it's by a guy named Sergio Popovich, uh, and it is about how to overthrow tyrannic. Tyr- tyrannous overthrow bullies it's about how, how to, to overthrow, overthrow tyrannosaurus bullies. rex <laughs> tyrannosaurus rexes and other bullies the octave in which you're ending uh huh? you, what should be statements is concerning <laughs> ian <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna be another joe's like i didn't read this book but <laughs> yeah i don't but. fucking know but here we go <laughs> uh, hello i'm dr ian DeYoung. i'm a high school english teacher and nick since making your way in the world today takes everything you got, mm-hmm. I would recommend this week Jessica Bruder's nonfiction book, Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century, which oh. definitely has concrete survival tips for America in the 21st century. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. (laughs) Who who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. (laughs) I was expecting more... um, you know, like wrap two pieces of yarn together to create a pulley system in which you can make a toilet out of sticks, you know, something like that. Nick, it sounds like you already know how to do that, though. So why would we bring that book? That's true. <laughs> you just listed out a pretty foolproof method for toilets. Well, now we know. We're just trying to, to push your horizons. Okay. So... Joe's trying to push your horizon into uh, the realm of surviving as a member of a Soviet nation. And I'm trying to help you survive America in the 21st century. So, Joe, your book seems extremely relevant. (laughs) Joe, are are you there? (laughs) Maybe Joe, maybe Joe didn't take the advice of his book and failed to survive. Joe has been taken by the Soviets. <laughs> this, is, this is a great test. Which of us will survive? And so far, I yes. am surviving, and Joe is not. It's 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 gotten too real, you know. Got, hey guys, <laughs> hey guys, can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, we can hear oh you. Oh my god, I said so much great stuff, Nick. You'll have to go to the recording. Uh, <laughs> I was talking that entire time. You fucking idiot. I was like, oh, Jesus, no. these guys are talking right over me. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to You Don't Know Lit, uh, a strongly podcast about literature, <laughs> where we pick a theme and two books that kind of don't really fit that theme, uh, as Joe has highlighted today. And <laughs> I would like to point out that I was going to bring the book, How to Survive in the Woods, which is a classic survivor guide. But yeah, awesome. what, would you, what would you say about it? It's like, hey, guess what, guys? You need shelter. After that, you need food. Uh, Joe? <laughs> Joe, you brought the art of war, which might be the most useless narrative on the planet. So I think a survival guide would have been just If your fine. horses eat some sand, <laughs> tickle them under the chin and they'll spit it right out. <laughs> the book that I've read this week uh, references the art of war probably 15 times throughout it. Are you serious? It references it all the time. Oh my god. Oh, he's just he just wants to quote more Sun Tzu. <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've just uh, prepared a list of Sun Tzu quotes. I hope that's okay. Well, clearly rules are important here. So um we do have three of them. Uh rule number one, only unavoidable spoilers. Rule number two, uh omit needless words, Joe. And rule number three, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing that's important here. Vince Lombardi. Joe, I would like to hear the your full book title. So why don't you take oh, thirty no. seconds? <laughs> 
<laughs> and take up that full 30 and just tell me the, the title of your book. Real yeah. Quick. Okay. So the title of my book is Blueprint for Revolution, How to Use Rice Pudding, Lego Men, and Other Nonviolent Techniques to Galvanize Communities, Overthrow Dictators, or Simply Change the World. Paperback Illustrated, February 3rd, 2015. Um, I don't Nick, think that's a part of the title. Oh, <laughs> I just kept reading. Nick, there are two types of protest movements, spontaneous or successful. This book is a handbook for peaceful protesters, activists, and organizers, anyone trying to defend their rights, hold government accountable, or Nick, change the world. 200 pages long, 2015, guy named Sergio Popovich wrote it, uh, and it is pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty is good. it? Is it, Joe? Yeah, I don't understand. It's super interesting, and it's <laughs> is it totally about survival. What are we? What are we going to learn, Joe? Anything? Um, you are going to learn how to use rice pudding, Lego men, and other nonviolent techniques to galvanize communities, overthrow dictators, or simply change the world. Nick, I think that's yeah, yeah. It was that. Clear. I already have a problem with the fact that rice pudding is not a technique, and neither is Lego men. Mm. No, they are not techniques. They are instruments to uh, to to. Well, you know, as he gal- said, galvanize, galvanize overthrow, the change overth- the world. Yeah, yes. like, yeah. please listen, Ian. Uh, Ian, Joe's book is either going to be the most interesting book you've ever heard in your life, or it it's going to be exactly what, what it sounds like. Uh, the latter. Yeah, the, stay the tuned. Opposite, the opposite of that. <laughs> no, I like the latter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Silenced. Ian, tell me about your book in 30 seconds, please. Much like the Best Picture-winning film, Rebecca, the recent Best Picture winner, Nomadland, was based on a book. This book, which I brought this week, tells the story of a few elderly American nomads, van dwellers, urban campers, RVers, who are trying to make lives for themselves in a society that's got no room for them. Equal parts devastating, poignant, and uplifting, Jessica Bruder's 2017 book, Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century, describes a survival method that more and more folks are using. What if we just hit the road? Ian? Yeah. Your sounds like it could be a downer, so let's start with that and then end on a high note with Joe's book. Right. Uh-huh. How to overthrow, galvanize, change yeah. the world. For some <laughs> reason, that does right still sound more optimistic than Ian's. Mm. Mm-hmm. Ian, your yeah. sounds dark, dismal. Yeah, I've seen well, the movie. <laughs> Actually, Ooh. okay, so so Nick, Nick, I know you've seen the film. Um, Joe, have you seen Nomadland, the movie? I I first heard about this when you were going to bring it as a book. I know nothing about it. Well, okay. he hasn't brought it well, yet. We're still waiting for him to bring it. So Ian, bring it. Sometimes you guys know I don't bring it. So, all right. So I watched this movie, Ian, and it ended. And well, first off, it was one of those movies where uh, I didn't really have a strong opinion on it either way. Right. Uh, When it ended. But when it ended, I looked to my wife and I said, oh, it seems kind of (laughs) nice. Yeah. (laughs) It seems like these people just like kind of live out on the road. I don't think that was supposed to be the message. Mm, I don't know. I I I don't know either. That might just be my own stress. <laughs> I think that might that that kind of might be the message. So this is a book which, when I read the synopsis, I thought to myself, like this is picture perfect downer for the pod. Yeah, this is really going to crush some we souls. Have to bring yeah, it. like this is going to be the downer of all downers. Like these older. Older people out on the road, you know, like privation and then all the sociopolitical reasons why they're out on the road, like classic. Can I add another layer to that? Yeah. It's like, oh, let's get this thing out on a Monday. People are going to be going back to work, thinking about how they have to be in the office five days a week or in their home five days a week or seven days a week if they're in their home because of the weekends, guys. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in, in the grind, that's for sure. And then they get to listen to this about how people just get in their car and hit the road. And so that can be another layer of, of really bringing people down. So good job on that front too, Ian. Yeah. You know what? That's, that's the, the service I'm contracted to carry out. Um, so, so, okay. So here's the thing. I thought this was going to be a classic downer and there are plenty of elements of this, which I'll talk about, which are kind of like really, really challenging, really grueling, really difficult to read. But this is a story about survival. This is a story about people getting through, getting by. And even there's not a word. 
there's this word survival, right? There's not a word thrival, which is like Sir Thrival. Sir Thrival. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's Sir Thrival. British. One of the members of King Arthur's Round Table. Yes. This is a story about <laughs> Sir Thrival. And like these people who are out on the road, sometimes because they have to because they have to be, they have no choice. They're not just like gutting it out, getting by. They find joy in their freedom and in their self-sufficiency. And I think that's a really cool thing. And that's something that that the film, I think, does some of. But the book really like there's a there's a lot of joy and a lot of sort of happiness and community in this book. Be uh before we get into the uh uh moral discourse here, um what is this book about? Yeah, so I guess I guess there's kind of two parts of this. The first is the the conditions which have to be survived. And the second part is the way that people survive them. So the book is kind of does both of these. It lays out the situation that uh, these nomads have to survive. And then it also tells us like what they do to get through. So Jessica Bruder, who is uh, a journalist, journalism uh, professor at Columbia, uh, wrote this book in the aftershocks of the Great Recession, which was 2008 to, to 2009. And during the Great Recession, there was just a huge, well, recession. But businesses closed. Banks were foreclosing on houses left and right. Unemployment was through the roof. Retirement funds were shriveling. Um, and this had a hu- really widespread human effect. So a lot of people found themselves houseless and without any retirement funding whatsoever. So many of these people bought or and or customized uh, vans or RVs and hit the road and they became fully transient and they survived kind of this transient lifestyle on seasonal work and social security. And and this is kind of, this is sort of where the downer part of the book shows up. The work is hard. The employers are multinational and pretty unethical. And the people sometimes find themselves in kind of dire straits, not the, not the band. They don't mm-hmm. find themselves as members of the band dire straits. Okay. Cause I think the timing would have been a little off there. Yeah. They're not time travelers. These are not like vans that go up to 88 miles an hour. Can I read you a one star um, review? I wish you would. Okay. Um, uh, Karen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Karen, <laughs> oh Karen here. We're starting off well. That doesn't happen enough. Um, Karen has a one-star review here. I'm just going to I'm gonna read just the first sentence here. This one is chosen by our book club leader who seemed bound and determined to pick the most depressing nonfiction he could find for us. Um, is Karen right here? Is this really depressing? <laughs> I don't think so. I think Karen's Karen's off base. Karen, if you're listening, I'm sorry, you're off base. Okay. I I think I think if you if you look at the narrative like the first half of this story, it's depressing. But if you read the whole thing, if you understand like what Jessica Bruder is trying to do here, she's charting a subculture. She's describing a subculture. And these are people who again, they're not just living in vans living in RVs, traveling around the U.S. They're not just doing this to, to scrape by. They're doing this because it is freeing for them. A lot of them uh, talk about like feeling kind of restricted by the need to pay rent, by the need to pay a mortgage, by being tied down. And a lot of them love the freedom of, you know, kind of going to different places, to experiencing different things, making really beautiful friendships. And also they love the, um, the experience of taking care of themselves. So a lot of these folks are older. A lot of these folks are in their 60s and 70s and they may be used to taking care of themselves and they keep taking care of themselves and doing it in resourceful and honestly heartwarming ways. So this isn't like a, I mean, this isn't a crazy new idea though. I mean, old people have been retiring and selling their houses for RVs for my entire life, right? They would like take their RV and live in Arizona for the winter and then come home here to Wisconsin, right? Like, so it's, it's, is it just that the RVs have gotten smaller, that they're now in conversion vans? Is it that what? like yeah. they're forced? Are they just too expensive? I feel like RVs have really... You know, they really accelerated. I don't know if it's just competition, but it's like, Mm. this thing is like nicer than my house. Is it like that, Ian? Well, so, and she gets into this. There are, there are kind of, really, there are those folks who buy an RV, um, that is a new model RV that is 40 feet long and 
handles like a like a tugboat, just mm. massive. Whoa, the kind of things that you don't want to pass on a mountain highway because they'll run you off the road by accident. There's those. And then there's the kind of RV life that she's describing. These are almost uniformly like very like 20, 30, 40 year old, renovated, cheap things right. that people have fixed up to live in. They don't sell their houses because it's like, oh, it's time to retire. They move out because their houses are foreclosed on or right. their their retirement is funds are gone and they can't afford mortgages anymore or because their living situations are too dire. They move out because they have to. And this is kind of their only option. Yeah, this is the old beat up Winnebago, right? This exactly. is like, yeah. Is this, right. um, is this book, uh, so uh, how is it, what's this book about? It's just like, so it's about nomads, I think. And yeah. is it about like, this is um complete nonfiction, right? Yeah. And so this she, is also, is this like a um, journalistic, right? Is this? Yeah. It's journal. It's journalistic nonfiction. Jessica Bruder went and be basically became part of the nomad culture. So the book follows a few of these colorful characters, um, Linda May and Swanky and uh, a couple of others who are part of this nomad subculture and um, just kind of like following, following in their, in their footsteps, getting to know, we get to know them. We get to know the conditions they work in. We get to know uh, the struggles that they deal with. Um, it's, it's it's sort of uh, the the book has a meandering sort of seasonal quality that matches the travels that these people take. Right. Um, every every one star review I'm reading says this is really hard to get through and it's pretty boring. Oh my goodness! I, so, I don't know. I don't know who these people are because this was just, this was I kind can tell of you their names. We got uh, Sarah <laughs> yes, names. Uh, Sue Sue McCarthy. Right. That's her full Karen. name. You can look her up. Um, <laughs> and, and the list goes on. So my question is: is how how do you get through this, or why? What are these people missing? Um, or what did you get I, out I, of it? I should say maybe. I think the the the, the besides way, a, the, a stark obligation to to bring it to this podcast. Obviously, <laughs> this is this is a book which which doesn't feel like nonfiction. Um, Bruder is really good at introducing us to these people. We can hear their voices, their characters. It's a cast of characters. And so she follows them around and we get to, we get to know them. We get to, we get to understand them, their philosophies, their predispositions, um, their adventures. Um, and she shines a light on this really fascinating subculture that I didn't know existed and yeah. the ways it works and the ways it's, it's so this is interesting. I think I, I I'm drawn to this from a human interest standpoint and also in part because of sort of how it illuminates parts of my life that I've taken for granted. So she details the labor of 60 something retirees at the beet harvest, the sugar beet harvest in Minnesota which is uh, uh, under the auspices of the American Crystal Sugar Company, which is one of the sugar companies. And the work Big that these sugar. people put in, these 60-plus-year-old people, to m make the beet harvest happen, when those beets are then processed into sugar, it's like the, the, the labor behind that five-pound sack of sugar I get at the grocery store is stupendous. And there are human beings with, with real lives, with real, real desires and, and interests. Kind of yeah, and people who are injured on the job, people yeah. who are kind of dealing with um, not great working conditions, and like the human cost behind that is really, really fascinating and kind of eye-opening. Right, and then they sell that bag of sugar for two dollars and fifty cents, and you're right. like, "How? That is amazing! How do they do that?" Exactly, capitalism. Exactly. All the stuff that kind of goes into it. It's like it's like when you pop the cover off of a machine and you see all the inner workings. Another example, uh, which has gotten kind of more press in recent years is um, Amazon. So a big part of these workers survival is Amazon's camper force program, which um, hires uh, these folks who live in, who live as nomads um, and, 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 
uh, kind of draws them in to do seasonal work on in Amazon fulfillment centers. And the descriptions of what it's like inside those Amazon warehouses, the descriptions of the, the human beings who, you know, strain their backs and develop numbness in their knees and who have to dodge Amazon robots and who stand in line for half an hour at the metal detectors to make sure that they're not stealing anything like these are human beings. And so I, I, re- I got an Amazon package today, today and I thought to myself, who like who touched this? Nice. What'd you get? Yeah. Sugar, <laughs> sugar by the pound. Order sugar, sugar from Amazon. Five pound box sugar. <laughs> Amazon recently came out with this this new exciting technology where they will track which warehouse activities use which muscle groups, and oh. they'll rotate people so that you're not using the same muscle group over and over, and therefore straining your tendons. That's right. Thoughtful. So you don't need health insurance from Amazon because <laughs> exactly. they already got your back. They got your back. Exactly. They literally have your back. <laughs> now, Ian, does it give you any solace that within only probably a short couple of years that it will be completely automated and that these people won't have to worry about these issues anymore? No, I would and say there's no solace. And in fact, it's a little bit concerning. So one of the wonderful, fascinating, nuanced things about this book is that this is not like Amazon evil down with capitalism. I mean, there's certainly a healthy strand of that, but these people see the Amazon work as well-paid and sometimes even fulfilling and enjoyable. They appreciate it. They sometimes are making more per hour than they would at other kinds of jobs. And it's seasonal, so they don't have to be tied down. They can work there, and then when the time comes, they can move on. So there's a really important chapter where Bruder is talking to these folks, and they're like, yeah, it's hard, but they were insisting to her. They were saying to her in interviews, do not make us out as victims. We're not victims. That's not the point of this. Right, like we've chosen this. Yeah, we are living a life where we're self-sufficient and we like the the kind of control of our own destinies to an extent. It's not, it's not, then this is why I say it's not a huge downer of a book because even though Amazon is a huge evil corporation, these people believe that they're getting something out of it. And that's kind of a, kind of a wonderful thing. Ian, even on past episodes, you've been real judgy when it comes to voyeuristic writing. I guess mm-hmm. my question is, where do you get off? <laughs> Wait, Ian, how dare you? How dare you? Uh, I think one of the things about this subculture is that they're very, very open to proselytizing. All of these nomads believe in the gospel of nomad life. So like they see this as an option to like fix social ills. They see this as a solution. They say like the world is messed up. People are property, property uh, prices like rent and and mortgages are through the roof. Um, Minimum wage has stagnated. Like no one is really like most folks are not making a living wage and they see this as an opportunity, a way out. And so they preach it and they're eager to recruit people. So I don't think this is voyeuristic because what Jessica Bruder does is she gives a voice to these people who are already super excited about nomad life. And, yeah. and one of her main characters who shows up in the film too, uh, Bob Wells, he's kind of one of the, the, the grand old figures of, of the nomad uh, subculture. Um, he runs um, the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous in Quartzsite, Arizona. And this is this huge gathering where they have seminars on like how to live on the road, things to avoid, like where you can stealth camp, where you shouldn't, how to use the bathroom, how to find a good shower. It's like a TED talk. Yeah. It's like TED talks for nomads. And this, the whole point (laughs) is you can do this. It's very empowering. It's like, Hey, yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like it's, like any time you can play 
like they are no longer playing by the rules of the system that they were born into or the rules of the system that they found themselves in. Right. Like in a lot of ways, it feels like, you know, this, this nomad life, this, you know, hashtag camper force, hashtag van life, whatever it is, is it is like them kind of saying like, Hey, F you society. We're going to play by our own rules. Like we don't need to pay rent. We don't need to have a 401k. We don't need to do what we've been told we need to do our whole lives. Yeah, it's it's really it's really like people don't realize you can cut out your housing cost. You can just get rid yeah. of that. And if you do that, your life changes pretty significantly. Uh, sure. I don't think it's something that I would I would do in my current situation, <laughs> but I I certainly It's not like, for everyone. This is a surprisingly <laughs> persuasive account of how you can survive just the the overwhelming weight of being a grown up right. with some degree of freedom and autonomy. Ian, I have a question. This is this has been a concern the entire time that you've been talking. Um, I read an article once, and the article was called hashtag Van Life, right? And it was about mm. van influencers, Instagram influencers. Ian. Are these are these people? Instagrammers like like is this sold as a romantic lifestyle like is that part of the motivation for these people may I add to that I wish you would Um, Ian are there any dank pages we could smash the subscribe button on Uh, um, okay so let me take these questions in order no these are not vanstagrammers and there's a there's a small but but pungent section of the book where Bruder's (laughs) like no that's not what's going on that's not who these people are I bet they hate each other (laughs) Oh, that has to be the worst. Like those, they aren't real van lifers. They aren't real. I bet they like snap on the other side of the road. (laughs) Yeah. Like West Side Story, guys? Yeah, no, I got it. I got the West Side Story. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure because that's a musical and you guys just read books. Right. 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 Did they all have trauma? I feel like all of them must have had (laughs) trauma in their life because I'll be honest. I feel like if something happened in my life, I'd be like, ah. I'll go be a nomad. Fuck it. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. It's, well, like there must be, does yeah. it ever talk about like what people's like tipping point is? Oh yeah. Totally. Because I don't think people like just wake up and do this. Right. No, most of them, a lot for a lot of them, the trauma I've had was, some bad bosses, but I don't know if I've ever had right. some like nomad land bad. I'm bailing. Um, so a lot of them, their trauma is kind of related to finances. So like I said, the Great Recession, a lot of people had, you know, healthy 401ks and then everything crashed for like a year and a half and longer mm-hmm. and they their their money was gone and they had nothing. And so they were kind of forced out onto the road. Uh, a couple of them did have these kind of traumatic experiences. Some of them, like there are some younger nomads whose parents are like, get out of my house or their parents are dead or their parents are in a bad situation. Like the, the the younger folks kind of head out on their own. But um, for many folks, it's an inability. Like the tipping point is, I'm getting four hundred and twenty five dollars a month from Social Security. Mm-hmm. I have no other income, and no job will hire me because I'm too old. I could either gradually die in the uh, Los Angeles area apartment shared by eight or nine of my immediate family. Or I could hit the road and find jobs where they want me. So Camper Force and Amazon mm-hmm. recruit these folks, these older folks. Camp Campgrounds recruit them. The bead harvest recruits them because they know these people are willing to work. These people are diligent and hard workers. Um, they're, they're, they're not going to flake. They're not going to leave after a little bit. And they know they don't have to pay them top, top dollar because these people are eager for the work. So yeah, the trauma is not being able to, to stay in the conventional track anymore. And yeah. you have to do something else. And either you die gradually, slowly, miserably, or you, you claim some degree of independence for yourself. You live yeah. long enough to see yourself become the villain. Yeah. Now, I think that's a clear choice. Like, I think when you put it like that, it's like I could live in this like housing unit with my family who I am a burden on with, you know, in poverty and destitute and these things, or I could like die with dignity. 
right? Like, like I could like live these last 10 years of my life. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's a pretty clear choice. It's not, I think that's, a, and it, that's an easy one. It's not just like they're waiting to die either. This is the last thing I want to say. So like our main character throughout the book, Linda May, uh, who is the one who starts off living in that, in that apartment. Um, her goal for, for much of her later life, she's been, interested in the idea of the earth ship, which is a renewable house um, made out of tires and very like recycled, very green, very kind of hippie style thing. And she wants to buy some land in Arizona or New Mexico and build an earth ship and live there. And an earth ship. Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a whole, it's a whole uh, architectural design. It's a hobbit hole. It's, it's like a hobbit hole. Made out of re- recycled materials. It's very, very, uh, very new age. Very, very green. So, um, like dirt, more recyclable than dirt. Yeah, like the like the roof is grass. Yeah, oh. it, it's kind of like, and there's like you don't have an AC because you you use natural airflow through live tubes in, in the earth to cool off the. Because it's very like it's very very permaculture. So her goal because is this. Don't She's not just waiting around trying to like you know, have some last hurrahs before she dies. She's like, no, I want to build my earth ship and I want to live there with my friends that I've made being a nomad. And she, over the course of the book, she buys the land and the book ends with her going to her land and breaking ground to start building her earth ship. And because she is one of the stars of the of the film, uh, she was paid some money for that, and that has allowed her to kind of for, continue pursuing these dreams. And so, these people they have long term goals, and sometimes you know they achieve them, and it's that's a it's a really kind of cool, hopeful thing. Yeah, we all die alone anyway. Am I right, guys? <laughs> Everyone dies alone in the acceptance speech. Francis McDormand howled. Yes. Is that? Oh, I read about this. Can you quickly explain what that was? Yeah. So um, is that from the book? No, Fra- Francis McDormand is famously uh, her own person and did her own thing. And um, the, one of the, one of the people who worked on the film, one of the primary uh, uh, people on the crew of the film was named Michael Wolf. And he okay, passed away. The audio engineer. Yeah. In the midst of the, yeah. in the midst of the, uh, towards the end, I think of the filming, he passed away, and that was McDormand's way of honoring him, which I think is uh, so much more cool and meaningful than just being like, oh, and I want to thank so and so who passed away. She, 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 she howled on stage, which, again, y- you go, Francis McDormand. My book has ice tunnels. My book has uh, a lot of fun games that are just actually part of the book, and I'm going to bring one next week. My book has frostbite. Oh, <laughs> your book sounds Great. super uplifting. Focused my theme book has uh, from Ian. Tea. My book, my book has nice fresh seal meat. Seal oh, my meat. Book, it seems like you my eat that cold. Book has veal, which is kind of like seal. Yeah, rhymes. They do, they do rhyme. It's kind of like seal in that it rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners, you've no doubt guessed that next week we're going to be bringing the theme of isolation. <laughs> We've done it again. Uh, yeah. Oh, is this the part where we say what our books are? It'd be nice. I'll I'll bring, um, I'm going to bring a book published in 1934, 1938 um, by Admiral Richard Byrd, who was an explorer <laughs> in Antarctica. <laughs> Uh-huh. And the book I br- I'm going to bring is entitled Alone. He spends most mm. of it alone. Your author's <laughs> name is Richard Bird? Admirable yeah. Richard Bird. Famous Admirable Richard Bird. No, not Admiral. Admiral. Not Admiral. Admiral. Not Admirable. admirable? Not admirable. <laughs> Was he admirable? Like ship, ship Navy captain. Admirable means great and awesome. Admiral means he can tell ships what to do. <laughs> okay I, you know i used to different, live um different. on a street that was two streets down from bird street like he's this is a famous guy that's, 
<laughs> That's an amazing story, Joe. Holy shit, no, Joe. It's true. It was, Tell it stories was all, like that more. <laughs> it was all explorers, though. It was like Thank Lindbergh. Thank you for sharing that. I really am happy I read that. I heard that. <laughs> hey, guys, one time I saw a bird. Hey, uh, I have a PhD in Shakespeare who is sometimes called the immortal bard, and bard is similar to bird. <laughs> All right. I'm bringing a gentleman in Moscow. It's by a guy named Martels. And it's like my favorite book I've read in the last year. I've read it three times since I read it. Hey, Joe. Yeah. Tell us everything we need to know about Siberia. Oh, okay. So only a very small part of this book is about Siberia. A larger part of it, Nick, is about um, Serbia, which I hmm. I get it. it it's tricky. Geography is tough. Uh, but yeah, this this book is kind of cool. Uh, it's called Blueprint for a Revolution. It was written by a guy named, I, I'm just going to go ahead and assume I'm pronouncing this incorrectly, uh, Sergio Popovich. Yep. Um, and Sergio Popovich is a pretty interesting guy. He was a college student in Serbia in the late 90s when a guy named um, Slobodan Milosevic was in power there. You think you got that one right? Yeah, that one's, I'm pretty sure, because that guy's pretty famous. Okay. Um, he, even if you don't know the name, you might have heard the phrase ethnic cleansing, oh, um, which God. was a phrase that he popularized. <laughs> yeah, so. Um, God, where's this going? <laughs> about the depressing element to this. <laughs> okay. I thought this was going to be rice pudding focused. Well, well, okay. So it starts with ethnic cleansing, but it ends with like rice pudding okay. and Lego man. I'm, Joe, I got to stop you right now. Yep. Is the rice pudding made from? Oh, is it soil and green? Is the rice pudding people? Uh, the rice pudding is not people. It's made out of like rice and uh, other pudding related. Pudding, pudding, pudding like related. Sugar, perhaps. Sugar. Um, I do have a <laughs> lot of rice pudding. I keep it in my pockets for emergencies. Sure. What should I do with it, Joe? I think if it's rice pudding, you should throw it away because that is disgusting. It's the worst. Yeah, but there's this authoritarian government I want to overthrow. So, can oh, I? Oh, well, in that case, um, you are going to want to host a party in which you serve everybody rice pudding and like do community building uh, and grassroots movements. Are you serious? Yeah, Aww. that's what you do with it. It's like an yep. olive branch. I hate that. I thought it was going to be like put it in there, po- the gas. The gas tanks of the tanks. Oh, okay. No. So there's Ian, you're so dramatic. There's some of that. There's not like put it in the gas tanks of the tanks stuff. Um, but but I I think the I'm getting ahead of myself. Tank. Right. Tanks have gas tanks. <sighs> yeah, that's why they're called tanks. <laughs> that's why they're called tanks. <laughs> Idiot. Of course. All right. So this guy was a college student in the late '90s, um, and he was kind of like many college students are, he was a bit of an activist. Um, he belonged to this group, uh, was a leader slash founder. I'm putting a question mark after founder, certainly a leader of this group called Atpar, which means okay. resist. And, um, and essentially he, this group did a lot of clever things to undermine the despots that ran the government. Okay. Joe, um, when I hear the word group and leader in a sentence, I get mm-hmm. real concerned real fast. Right. Is this a cult? Is that what you're saying? Mm. Sure. That could be one, one sure. interpretation. Yep. No, not a cult. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, oh, I'm no. kind of a cult. <laughs> Only by definition. <laughs> Joe, let me give yep. you some advice. When Nick asks you a leading question like that, you can mm. just say, no, it's not a cult. Don't say it's not a cult. Well, please. Well, yeah. That's please don't give linger. him. You're right. Ian, don't you're give right. him any tips, please. All right, Nick. It's not a cult. <laughs> Fantastic. It's not a cult. It's right, not a sorry, cult. I'm so sorry to interrupt. No, keep keep it up. Um, <laughs> so they, but basically, they did. They started doing all these kind of clever things to undermine the government. Um, so, for example, can I give you an example of one clever thing that they did? That's all I want. Okay. So they noticed that anytime they gathered in really large numbers, like if they tried to like occupy a square, the brutal police would come in and arrest them and beat them up and torture them. And it was a bad situation, right? Like occupying public spaces was not an effective tactic to protest. So at one point they said, well, hey, how can we make these police look really stupid without actually like being violent against them 
or doing something that's going to get us in trouble. So they didn't have any money, but they pulled the little bit that they had. <laughs> Say it on three. They went to one, two, yep. rice pudding. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. No, no, no. They went to a farm and they bought a bunch of turkeys. Okay. <laughs> okay. Even better. <laughs> yep. They bought please, a bunch of turkeys. Please tell me they trained them and put lasers on their heads or lobsters. <laughs> that would be weapons of mass destruction. That's against the Geneva Convention. Oh, good. And the Turkey Convention. They actually put a white flower on all of their heads. Uh, and this is because the uh, the Slobodan Milosevic's wife, who was reviled, like absolutely reviled, was famous for wearing a white flower in her hair. So they went to, they got all these turkeys. They put a white flower on their head. A turkey, by the way, like is one of the worst things you can call a woman in Serbia. Oh, like no. it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a this bad took name kind for of a, a misogynist turn. Yeah. It, it's a bit of a misogynist <laughs> turn, but they let them go in a public square. Like they went to like downtown, uh, Oh, I'm going to be foolish here. Belarus. How am I doing on geography? Belarus. You're doing great, Joe. Belarus. Wow. Ian K. Is that true? (laughs) No, 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 no. I got this. They they went to downtown Serbia, you know, Serbia city, Serbia, and they let these turkeys go. And like, as turkeys will do, they kind of caused a bit of a ruckus and not Mm -hmm. just any turkeys, like turkeys dressed like Slobodan Milosevic's wife. Okay. It caused chaos. Did that rile some feathers? It it, it riled (laughs) some feathers. It caused some chaos. But the real thing that it did is all these turkeys dressed like the president's wife, these police, like these famously brutal police had to catch them and round them up. And Nick- Is there video footage of this? Nick, have you ever seen somebody trying to catch a turkey- (laughs) You say uh, dressed like her. Did did they have the full garb or was it just okay. the, the Yeah, not so super good question. I, I looked into this a little bit because <laughs> I had the exact same question. In the book, he specifically uses the phrase like, we dressed the turkeys up like her. But when he goes into the details, he only talks about what, the white flower. So Ian, kind of I, I'm down. just going to go ahead and say confidently here that he dressed them up. Like her, uh, like they it were sounds like he just put flowers suits. on them. Well, maybe I, I, I'm the one that read the book, so maybe he, he meant dressed, dressed like, like they had, um, like some stuffing, right? Like her, like a rice, a nice rice peel off. So, long story short, like the police, these famously brutal police, like a dressing, had to run around the square catching these turkeys, and they looked silly doing it because everybody catching turkeys or catching chickens, like you look very silly doing it. And then you catch them and then they flap their wings really fast and it scares you and you let them go. It's scary. It's really scary. I almost got attacked by a goose the other day. I don't want to talk about it. Geese are terrible. They're absolute, they're horrible. Yeah. And every time I see their stupid necks, I just want to fucking break it. Um, (laughs) So, um, so Joe, where is this story going? So this is how it all started, huh? This was their first big chess play. Yeah. So this is how it all started. And? Well, that's how it all started. The reason that we know this guy's name that I can't pronounce, um, Sergio <laughs> Popovich, yep. the reason that we know his name. name today, the reason that he writes books today is because Papa. this was successful, right? Like, like, like in the year, I want to say 2000, uh, in the year 2000, Slobodan Milosevic stepped out of power. Um, he was like brought up on war crimes, uh, like all these things, like this resistance from within his own country, nonviolent resistance from with his own country, um, effectively overthrew his government. And now this guy, Sergei Popovich, he goes around the world and he trains people in how to uh, affect effective nonviolent resistance. Um, however, since he did this, he has like, he has his name tied to a lot of successful, and I'm going to put successful in quotes because okay. these revolutions all have varying degrees of success. But for example, during the Arab Spring, um, when all of these Middle Eastern uh, governments were being overthrown, when we got uh, governments overthrown in Tunisia, when we got governments overthrown in Egypt, um, his Sergei Popovich's group, a uh, group called Canvas, worked directly with the leaders of these movements, trained them in how to be effective, and like got 
results. Like the like the government in Egypt has changed, right? Muammar Gaddafi is is gone. Uh, that's a different country, but you get the idea. Now, I feel like we step skipped a couple steps. Yep, let's hear it. <laughs> step one. Well, step get one. Get some turkeys. turkeys and flowers and do a misogynist insult about the leader's wife. Step two, hey. question mark. Step three, he steps down. We may be jumping too far ahead in this mm-hmm. book, or maybe not. But what? Wh- who wrote this book, and what is it about? Okay, so <laughs> what is happening? This is a, so, a biography, an autobiography, kind of. No, this is a. Um, it, it's neither. This is a basically a book of Sergey Popovich's lessons. Just learned. call him Papa. Papa, Big Papa. Uh, this is a book of the lessons that Big Papa has learned when helping these groups put together successful nonviolent resistance attempts. And one of the things that he says is he says, look, despite like the title of this book being a blueprint for a revolution, there is no such thing. Every revolution happens with its in, within its own social constraints, within mm-hmm. its own pressures, within its own like like what right. worked for us will not necessarily work for you. However, when we look at this huge spectrum of successful revolutions, right, and when and when we talk about successful, he talks about um, Gandhi, he talks about Martin Luther King, he talks about the Arab Spring, he talks about um, Vietnam and the counterculture, right? He says, okay. when we look at this huge group of successful revolutions, we can see commonalities between them, right? We can see the stuff that they did. And what I want to do is I want to talk about tactics. Like, I want to tell you all the stuff about the turkeys in the street, right? And how that's effective. But ultimately, I want to talk about lessons that we draw from that. So it's essentially a book of case studies of successful uh, revolutions. Joe. Yes. Is there anything that we can use in our lives today. What are the action items? Okay. Okay. This, Let me give you a scenario and I want you to tell me how to fix it. Oh, see, this is so hard. Cause, uh, Oh, I'm no, just jumping here. No, and give I, you I read the book. Shut up. God, I did read <laughs> one book. 50 well, Shades You really Grey, shouldn't have said that out loud when you didn't read it. Yeah. That was a fuck up. Um, okay. All right. Okay, there's I, somebody I don't like at work and I want to get them fired. What do I do? Yep. Turkeys. Okay. Turkey is one option. Choose right? the That's animal that option. most Turkeys. looks like his significant other. What's a turkey okay. egg look like? Um, like a chicken egg, but bigger. How much bigger? Because uh, turkeys are a lot fucking bigger than chickens. Turkeys are big. Would this be turkeys are would, big? Would you be a better revolutionary if you were raised on the farm? I think so. Access to livestock, right? Access to fowl. Yep. Access to manure, right? I bet manure goes a long way. And revolutionary. Well, we, we didn't read the book. Does it? It, it could. It's not <laughs> one that he specifies. <laughs> I do want to tell you about the principles. Like, right. like I, do, I do want to eventually tell you about the principles. But the thing is, is like the principles are a little bit boring. And I think it's what I would like to end with. Okay. Okay, great. <laughs> well, because the, the principles, like if I ask you right now what the principles of, um, of, a successful revolution are, I bet you could come up with a bunch of them. Like Put when he actually details the principle. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. that's a tactic. That's a tactic. That's a that's tactic, a principle. Ian. Oh, goodness. I'm, um, so I'm going to say um, uh, cause, uh, like, um, attack your enemies. Mayhem. Oh, Mayhem. Nick, you've nailed it. Go on the offensive is one yeah. of the first, is one of the first uh, tactic or one of the first principles. Okay. Sorry, Ian. Okay. Yep. Do you want to keep guessing? You're doing okay. Uh, uh, something game. about mistrust, <laughs> like cause mistrust. Oh, okay. One of the things that he talks about is it's very important to um, make the people who are like, who don't necessarily have skin in the game. They mm, might be people who are- The fringe. Who, yeah, the fringe. They probably aren't super happy with, you know, the ethnic cleansing going on, but mm, you know yeah, what? They're not going to speak out. Like they're not going to come to a protest. One of the things to do is to make them feel included, like make them feel like they are part of this mm-hmm. um, and make it feel like the resistance movement 
is everywhere. So a very small thing that they did that I really, really like is they gave out these little stickers to everybody. Like they would get these little stickers printed with the fist, but like tiny little stickers, like the size of a dime. And they would get them printed by the 10,000s, hundreds of thousands. And the protesters would just put these everywhere. So like you get on a bus, there's a little sticker in front of you. Like you look at the bottom of somebody's shoe and there's a little good. sticker sticking to it. Right. Is this a book so like, about marketing? It, but certainly like that is absolutely part of it is like marketing your revolution. He even talks about like how like the revolutionaries that you put at the forefront, like the first line between you and the police should be the beautiful girls. Right. <laughs> so that a, the police don't want to like oh. hurt them. And then B, like you seem awesome. So like, it's like a Budweiser ad. It's a, it's a Budweiser ad. <laughs> uh, same sort of thing. Like they would stamp currency put it back into circulation so that when you get that money, like the stamp of the resistance is everywhere. So it feels like this, like really vital, really omnipresent movement. And you don't feel weird for supporting it. Like you don't feel like a revolutionary for thinking it's a pretty good idea because it's everywhere. Who is this guy? And and was he (laughs) actually successful? Like is, is I don't. Okay. So he started these shenanigans and, I mean, do people really credit him as being some is is like the 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 first domino here? Um, I don't think necessarily the first domino. Like in a lot of ways, he builds on what has come before him, right? Okay, like he got, references okay. Gandhi, he references Sun Tzu, right? Like he references like all of these successful. Um, no, but I mean within his 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 uh, climate, his his yes, okay, good community. question, yeah. So within his climate, with, within his community, like, like put it this way, after Slobodan Milosevic stepped down, this guy was elected to parliament, right? So like, wait, so this, like the he, guy who wrote the book, the guy who wrote the book, right? Like this resistance leader was elected to parliament or, uh, after. Okay. Milosevic so people were down. legitimately listening. Yeah. Like this is like, this guy is, he's not some schmuck. Like he's, he's not, not some Banksy nobody. behind the scenes is what you're saying. Right. No. And since he's left parliament, like he's, he's probably about 50 years old now would be my guess. He's gone on and like his life's work has been <laughs> taking the lessons that he learned, like in this successful, um, protest in this uh, successful demonstration and spreading them to other people who are looking to overthrow governments, who are looking to overthrow despots, who are looking to overthrow kinda, people around the world. It's kind of weird to me. It almost seems like this is how you win in politics. Is this more of like a, it's, don't you think it's kind of weird that he went to parliament? Like he got into politics? Yeah, it it is a little bit weird. And they talked a lot about that. Like who's they? uh, So I'm sorry. He discusses it in in the book, I guess. He discusses it in the book about like how within Atpar, which was the name of this revolutionary group, within Atpar, they, they weren't sure if they wanted to become a political party or not. Like, like what are their hmm. goals? Do they want to just get Milosevic to step down and then like, that's it. Or do they have goals beyond that? Um, and he eventually does go into politics and, and, and serves as like a minor politician for a while. Hmm. I like um, the pointlessness of Joe's book. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of fun. <laughs> but I do feel like uh, Ian's book might have uh, something that would actually like, you know, leave me with something to think about. Right. Joe, right. Joe, your book seems more of like right up Dennis the Menace's alley. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, it's like if Banksy wasn't good at art. Right. He would be doing this. But having fun with turkeys was Banksy's right. Thing. Hey, why did Banksy not step it up during the last four years? Am I right? Like nothing? He didn't do anything to speak out against Trump? That was kind of fucking bullshit, huh? Oh, he did. He did? Yeah. Well, mm. I, don't, I didn't hear about it. I didn't hear about it. He sold a painting, which was then shredded. What more? How, how much more can you come at Trump than that? Right. That's, it's not even veiled. It's just like the gloves are off. Right. <sighs> You've disappointed us once again, Mr. Banksy. <laughs> um, Joe, you lose. Um, 
Yeah, I know. It's tough. But please do not send turkeys out into my house. <laughs> or, oh, no, it's I on. think Joe already ordered. Joe already put in his order for turkeys just to kind of. What, Joe, why don't you hawk this podcast and then tell us about the Lego men very briefly? Yep, absolutely. Um, Nick, um, as you know, this book is about about overthrowing dictators. Uh, Lidheads, if you want to help us overthrow the bigger, meaner podcasts, right? If you want to mm-hmm. like help us overthrow public radio, help us overthrow take a, public take radio. Take down public radio. <laughs> Lidheads, the best way to do that is to leave a uh, review on the podcast player of your choice. Five stars, if you please. Also, if you want us to talk about a certain book, um, go ahead and leave that suggestion at youdon'tknowlitpodcast.com. Com, I believe is the address. There's a button there to suggest a book. Are you going to tell us about Lego men or no? <laughs> yeah, very briefly about Lego men. Um, after one of Vladimir Putin's fraudulent elections. Um, so in Siberia, in this no-name town in Siberia, instead of people coming out and protesting, they would, they would stage protests with toys like so outside of like the government buildings there they would put all these toys outside holding like these tiny little protest signs and like these like uh revolutionary flags and things like that which of course got a ton of uh media attention at first it's like well just ignore that that's not a big deal but the government did not ignore it (laughs) (laughs) they're really bad at that (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Instead, the government uh, was apparently extremely offended by this. Somebody in the Kremlin didn't like this at all. So uh, within a couple of days, the military released a press release that said um, that toys are not allowed to protest. It is illegal for toys to protest <laughs> because toys are not, after all, Russian citizens. And protesting is a, you know, a right of the Russian citizen. Is the statement of this book to just go after the ego of the people that are in charge. Boy. Because it seems like that's it, it, right? Like, just destroy the ego and they will make sure they will try to crush you. Yeah, it's it's very much like the emperor has no clothes sort of situation, right? Where it's like, it, it just point out the ridiculousness of the people in charge and they cannot help but take the bait. And a little cre- and sprinkle a little creativity in there. And a little stickers. creativity. And turkeys. Mm-hmm. And turkeys. Yeah. Ian laughtivism and what laughtivism like not activism but like laughtivism laughtivism did you just make that word up no it's it's in the book laughtivism like laughing yeah like like you make people laugh like you make somebody chase a turkey you make somebody like laugh at a tiny little lego protester that's a word they use laughtivism i'm so glad you lost (laughs) Ian, ian why don't you um please read us a quote okay and put us out um, of our misery. Uh, so, okay. So this is a quote from um, uh, Linda May, who is the main character, one of the main characters of Nomadland. One of the ones that we follow, the one who is living in that tiny apartment. And one of the most vocal sort of uh, proponents of the freedom of living out on the road. And so this is an interview. She was one of the stars of the movie uh, playing herself and an interview uh, with her after the movie came out, um, the movie which has now won the Best Picture Award from Oscar. And the interviewer and Best asks, Director. The interviewer asks, how did you feel about being in the movie? Was it exciting? Was it nerve-wracking? She says, well, I never had any intentions of being in a movie. That was just not on my radar at all. I thought maybe I'd walk through a scene or something, but it ended up being more than that. It just kept evolving for me. And I just said, okay, I'm just going to go along with all of this because I wanted to have our story of van dwellers and and people that choose or somehow end up living in an RV on screen. Some people choose it and some are forced into it, like Bob Wells was forced into it and end up loving the life. We could just shrug off what it's like to live in the city, the constant traffic, the noise, to be in an RV in the forest with such peace. You think it's quiet, but there's all this wildlife around you making all this noise, the birds singing and the coyotes singing, but it's peaceful. You just feel such a connection. You feel more alive there. Well, I did. I felt more alive there than I ever did living in a city with noisy neighbors and sirens and air traffic. 
to not have any of those interruptions in your space is such a feeling of freedom. 